If you don't know me, I'm Dylan. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm honored to be able to teach the scriptures this morning. Uh, Today, we begin the series we preach through at the start of every new year about the spiritual disciplines or ways that you grow spiritually according to the Bible. And as we look down the road of 2020, many of you are going to make resolutions and you're determined to be a better version of yourself. We want to help you do that spiritually, not just physically. And we view it as our job to equip you to do that. So today we're starting off with the spiritual practice of prayer. But before we jump right into it, would you join me in asking the Father to be with us during this time? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you said you sent it out to produce fruit and it doesn't return to you empty. So I pray that each of us here today, Lord, would produce the fruit of righteousness and that your word would return full and plentiful to you because of the work of our hands. And we ask it in the name of Christ Jesus, your son. Amen. Prayer is the most simple and I think simultaneously the most difficult spiritual practice for me, as I'm sure it is for some of you. All of us know fundamentally, I think, what prayer is. Talking to God isn't rocket science. However, many of us struggle to do it consistently and feel like we've done it effectively. Uh, Jesus' disciples felt the same way. The disciples had cast out demons. They'd preached across the countryside. They'd ministered everywhere in the nation of Israel. And in the Gospel of Luke, they come back together to Jesus in Luke chapter 11 with a question. After they've done all of these things, they must have seemed like spiritual giants in their day. They come to Jesus with the question, Lord, teach us to pray. And this morning, I would like to take a look at Jesus' expanded response to that question. Because I think the Lord delighted to answer it, given that he said so much about it. Uh, Pete Grieg, who is a pastor in England, said he felt like his prayer life began when he could finally admit that he didn't know how to pray and admit that he was bad at it. And uh, I've recently read Pastor Greg's book, uh, How to Pray, A Simple Guide for Normal People, and it is the best book on prayer that I have read. I highly recommend it to you. It has helped my personal prayer life, and I've relied on it heavily for today's message. Uh, uh, Pete Grieg started a 24-7 prayer movement that started in the city of London that has spread to over 50 nations in the last 25 years of people praying 24 hours a day that God would move and God would speak. So if you're bad at prayer, take heart. You could start an international movement. Uh, There's still hope for you yet. To begin our study... I want to read Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 to 15, as we begin today, and look at what the Lord has to teach us about prayer for our new year. So if you turn to Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 5 with me, you can find it on your app, you could use the Bibles in front of you, or you could listen along to me reading. Let's read that together. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they, love, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us today our daily bread and forgive our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. May God give us understanding to obey his word. It's in his name. Amen. The first thing I'd like you to notice that the Lord does in this teaching is point to two different kinds of people, two groups of people. Number one, the religious hypocrites, and number two, the Gentiles. Now, if you're not sure what a Gentile is, it's basically a general term for anyone who is not Jewish in ethnicity. And I, for one, am very grateful to be a Gentile solely because of Juan Ceballos' Mexican cooking in carnitas. And I think that's the sole reason the Lord declared all foods clean. Amen. Yeah. But Jesus puts two kinds of people on display here. Uh, Two extremes we tend to drift towards. Two ditches in the sides of the road, if you will, that we can fall into. And today, I'd like us to take a look at the guardrails that are going to keep us on the road of prayer. But before we do that, I'd like to expand our analysis of these two types of people. The hypocrite and the Gentile. And the first is a ditch, I think, if you're a person of faith, that we're all in danger of falling into. It's it's the pit of the hypocrite. When we pray, Jesus told us not to be like the chief priests and the scribes of his day. They were self-righteous men who looked down on others, and they enjoyed being looked up to. They enjoyed the spotlight, the attention, and the admiration that came with spirituality and prayer. And it's a dangerous thing to turn this intimate act into a spectacle for others. Jesus warns us not to pray like them. I think all of us want a greater reward than simply man's admiration or approval. And after Jesus warns us against this ditch, he turns to the ditch on the other side of the road. In the minds of the disciples and the Jews of his day, nothing could be further from a priest than a Gentile. And in some countercultural minds, the further you get away from the religious, the more spiritual you become. But Jesus has something else entirely in mind. Look at this slide with me. Um, I took some comparative religion courses in college. You can switch to the next one there, Griff. I took some comparative religion courses in college. I really enjoyed them. Um, I think even if we're studying a faith that's not Christianity, we have a lot to learn from it. How people approach divinity tells us a lot about the human condition. This is a Tibetan prayer wheel uh, from the Tibetan sect of Buddhism. And uh, it was one of the faiths that I had to study in school. Some feel there's drums that are much larger than this, smaller than this. But the idea is that you write prayers down, you put them in this wheel, and you spin them uh, so that the prayers might pass before the eyes of what are called the bodhisattvas. They're like little gods that have attained nirvana and they have stuck around to help poor human beings like you and me get there too. So if your prayer passes before their eyes just enough times, maybe they'll hear you and maybe they will help you. And many Americans, particularly in the 1960s up to the present day, have been attracted to Buddhism and other Eastern religions because of their mystical qualities. And the idea even makes its way into Christianity today. Some of you think if you pray long enough, hard enough, pray in tongues enough, pray in the right formula, that God will hear you and do what you ask. If you pray this certain way with this specific wording or formula, then God's going to hear you. One of my favorite Tyler Perry movies is Medea Goes to Jail. Don't judge me. And uh, in it, Medea is talking to one of her grandkids and goes, yeah, Jesus names that stamp. You put it on up there and it gets to heaven. It's the postage. 
Some people use Jesus' name like it's an empty phrase that gets them whatever they want. But the Lord Jesus, however, says, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, thinking they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. What makes you heard by God is not your own righteousness, nor is it your own ability. It's neither religious nor mystical. It's something else entirely. It's relational. What the mystic Gentile fails to realize is that they're not bargaining with an impersonal force, but communing with a father God. And what the religious hypocrite doesn't see is that God's approval is much more valuable than man's. The Christian and the Jew might fall off one side of the horse where the Buddhist might fall off the other. Both are wrong ways to pray. However, I don't think that's enough for you this morning. What we need is not simply how not to pray, but we need to know how to pray. And Jesus just doesn't point, his, point out to his disciples the wrong ways to pray. He provides them with guardrails on how to pray, ways to keep them on the road of prayer. Notice verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. Uh, when I first began working at this church in 2006 with Pastor Paul, uh, I was still going to school full-time at North Point Bible College. And in addition to classes, I was working about 20 to 30 hours a week at the YMCA and about 20 or to 30 hours here as Pastor Paul's administrative assistant. And I threw a girlfriend in on top of it. It was pure pandemonium. It was chaos. And I can remember one particular week where if I combined my time in class, time doing homework, and both of my jobs, my work week was about 80 or 90 hours. And Sunday came and I realized that in the last week I had done nothing but work, eat, and sleep at a frantic pace. No prayer, no pausing, no time for friends and family, nothing. And at the end of the week, the Lord spoke to me out of the writings of the prophet Haggai in chapter 1 verse 9. It says, you looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And you brought it home, and I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because you busied yourself with your own house and of my house that lies in ruins. Translation, you failed to pause for God and were busy with your own interests. The Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments, yet it is one of the most neglected by Christians today. Because pausing has always been a human problem. And we need it more now than ever. Some of you may think that laziness is a problem in today's society. And you often lambast youth maybe for that. And think that we need more work and not less. But may I suggest to you that the energy that is put into avoiding work, watching TV shows and movies and playing games and ducking calls is just as much activity as those who overwork themselves. Jesus knows our propensity to anxiously run around whether in work or in play. All of us have a pausing problem. So Jesus tells his disciples in verse 6, shut yourself in a room and stop. And that may sound obvious, but those are not wasted words. You need quiet and solitude and you must carve out the time like your life depends on it. Because in a manner of speaking, it does. When you're anxious and stressed, your adrenal glands release something called cortisol which impairs your ability to think clearly and make healthy decisions. Cortisol subsides, however, when you sit quietly, letting the sediment of your swirling life calm down and be still. Some of you are wondering how that's even possible with children and sports and work and meal prep and everything else in all creation that's scratching at the door for your attention. 
And Jesus spoke to two women wondering the same, Mary and Martha. Martha was upset because she was left to meal prep for all these people, and the responsibilities seemed to pile up high in Luke chapter 10. She demanded help from Mary, who was sitting serenely at Jesus' feet and soaking in the Bible lesson. Jesus responded to Martha by saying, You're anxious about many things, Martha, but only one thing is required. Mary has chosen that better thing, and it will not be taken from her. And it's interesting that this this interaction is directly prior to Jesus' teaching on prayer in Luke chapter 11. Probably because the disciples hear this and they're like, well, God, I have as many responsibilities as Martha. So please, somebody teach me how to pray. Moms, dads, parents, listen to me. I, I don't know at all what you're going through. I do not understand what it's like to have children, sports, plays, and all the buzzing activity and chaos that go along with parenthood. But I do know that Jesus understands overwhelming responsibility. He describes Mary's decision to sit at his feet as a choice. And Jesus had the responsibility of thousands on him in the wilderness. People pressing in at all times. And yet took the time out to go away to a secluded place to pray. Susanna Wesley, the mother of two of Christianity's greatest men. John Wesley, the evangelist and Charles Wesley, the hymn writer, had 11 children. She was like starting her own nation. And during the day, her children knew not to bother her when she draped her apron over her head to pray. And by the way, her husband was a totally deadbeat minister who got charged with financial fraud. And she had to start this, but she would take the time to pray under her apron. And by the time of her death, she had a Bible study in a barn of over 200 people. Because she prayed, you have a choice to pause. More activity is not going to give you the rest that you need. Getting more things off your to-do list is not going to give you the rest that you need. More time pausing with God will. The first guardrail to keep us on the the road of prayer is learning to pause. Ceasing our working and playing to be still and listen. I was praying through this passage on Mary and Martha in this room on a Saturday about a year and a half ago, and I came here to pray, and there's ladies who pray in here on a a Saturday night, and they intercede for you, and we're thankful for them. And I walked around this room, and I was here just to have one of those times where you're overwhelmed by all the compartments of life. I had church things, and family things, and personal things, and it just all seemed to be crushing, like I just couldn't deal with it all. And I was praying, and I was reading Luke chapter 10. And it was one of those moments in prayer where I felt like the Lord hit my heart with a lightning bolt. I don't know if you've ever had one of those. It's like the words leapt off the page and demand that I attend to them. And the Lord spoke, I felt, and said, Dylan, you are anxious about many things, but one thing is required. And that one thing is to sit with Jesus at his feet. That's the second guardrail on the road to prayer. Rejoice. And this is missed by both the hypocrite and the Gentile. Both are trying to get something either from people or from God. And they don't realize that the greatest gift God can give is himself. And that's what I mean when I say prayer is not religious. It's not mystical. It's relational. It's the reason why so many of us hate spending time, more time at the office and at work. Because you'd rather be home with your children. And many of you young adults like myself who are transplants from other places have a longing for family and home because you know what it's like to only have work and not have 
that relational component to who you are. Because work isn't the point. Work provides a home where love can just kind of be. Prayer is like that. You're adoring and enjoying God because he's your everything. And when you realize that God isn't scowling at you, but he wants to bless you and be with you, it makes you want to spend more time in prayer. Listen to the intimate way Jesus tells us to begin our prayers. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven. No one before in Jewish history had told their disciples to address God individually so intimately. There were times in the nation of Israel where the whole nation could call God their Father, but on a personal level, that was taboo. In John chapter 5, the chief priests and scribes actually tried to stone Jesus because he calls God his Father. And I think it's when you realize whose hand you're in that you can be okay with life and all of its imperfections. Life loses its fatal edge when you know it's being directed by a father who loves you and is protecting you. And I can't help but think of my own father. I know not all of us have the opportunity to have a dad or have a dad who loves us and is a good and righteous dad. Because I think they're all pale comparisons to God. But God can teach you that. My mind drifts. I can remember my stepdad and I, uh, we went to see a movie once when I was about eight or nine years old. And there was a man behind us who was yelling the whole time and making noise. And politely, my stepdad turns around and asks him, hey, could you please, you know, keep it down? And the man stood up and punched my stepdad in the back of the head. And I'm like dazed, you know, he's dazed. I'm terrified. I don't know what's going on. Everything seemed to be spinning out of control. And my stepdad quickly recovers. I mean, he's like 280 pounds. I don't know how he spawned me, but he's huge. My stepdad quickly recovers, gets up, and in true Irish fashion, lifts the other guy off the ground with one hand and pins him to the wall. (laughs) I won't repeat what he said for this most auspicious gathering. It is not fit for the eight walls of the church. And he throws him on the ground and leaves him half out of it. And then, calm, cool, and collected, my dad sit, stepdad sits back down and takes a sip of soda. The theater attendant who witnessed the whole thing comes over to him and says, Sir, are you okay? I said, yeah, you might want to check the other guy, though. <laughs> now, that's a violent example. I do not encourage all the fathers out there to beat people up to impress their sons, even if it works. But at that moment, I felt protected. I felt cared for. I enjoyed just being with him. Um, when I was about seven years old, my, my, my biological dad, my real dad, took me out of school um, for the day, and we went to go see uh, the Three River Stadium in Pittsburgh get demolished. Coolest day ever to be taken out of school. Me and my dad are big Steelers fans. We're from Pittsburgh, but hey, for you Patriots fans, all right, we bow to your superiority. You always beat us. We get it. Okay. But I was, I'm a Steelers fan, so we go to the, the Three River Stadium, and it gets, gets blown up. It was the coolest day I was ever absent and uh, but I realized at the end of it it was fun because I was with my dad I enjoyed being with him in prayer the second guardrail that's going to keep you on track is rejoicing rejoicing in God being with your heavenly father and knowing that he's enough all earthly examples they might be bad foreshadowing your your earthly father might not be perfectly righteous like your heavenly father but God is your protector he hears you He loves you. He cares for you. And that's a confidence and rest in prayer that no mystical experience or religious performance can bring. The right to become children of God and address God as Father has been purchased in blood for you. 
That is no mystical experience. That is a fact. You can address God with confidence. Jesus said, your father knows what you need before you ask him. Not simply your Lord, not simply your God, though he is those things. He said, your father knows what you need. The Apostle Paul in Romans 8 said, you've been given the spirit of adoption through whom you can cry out, Abba, to God, which is a word that means father or more accurately, Dada. Some people like to translate it as daddy. I think that's both weird and incorrect. It's, it's more of like a more instinctual, a primal cry that in a, a, a toddler would have that says dada, that cries out. You have access to God and you can rejoice because of that. And that's what happened this morning with the people that were baptized. They have a new standing with God. They've reaffirmed that God looks at them through the lens of Christ Jesus now, not through the lens of their own righteousness. You don't have to spin a wheel to get God to notice you. He knows the very hairs on your head. Which gives you the confidence and assurance for the third guardrail. Ask. Ask God in prayer. And this is the most obvious portion of prayer. And it's what I think most people assume that prayer is. But prayer is not merely asking. But it's certainly not less than asking. Some people think they're purer than others because they never ask God for anything for themselves or for others. They say they just enjoy being with God and and they wear that as some kind of badge of honor. But James, the brother of Jesus, said to us in James 4, 2, you do not have because you do not ask. Prayer that is vague and imprecise can never be answered. It's like praying God, I hope for sunshine this week. Well, hey, unless you live in Seattle, jackpot. You're probably going to get it, okay? But Jesus encouraged us to ask. He teached his disciples to pray and to ask, thing from, ask for things from God. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Give us our bread. Forgive our debts. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. He teaches his disciples to ask for everything. He says, pray for the needs of the church, the spread of the gospel, your needs. Pray for your sins, pray for it all. C.S. Lewis, the author who wrote Mere Christianity in the Chronicles of Narnia, said, our passions, and dare I say our prayers, are not too strong but are too weak. We are far too easily pleased. Your desires and your requests and your prayers, they're not bad. They're just misdirected. And they're too easily pleased with less than God's ideal. And I think some of us are afraid to pray specifically because we're afraid of disappointment. That somehow God wouldn't answer us. But if you channel those disappointments and heartaches and discontentments into prayer, you just might find the satisfaction that you've been looking for all along. Jesus tells his disciples to pray for a proverbial shopping list of items. The coming of God's kingdom, provision of personal needs, forgiveness of sins, deliverance from evil powers, leading not into temptation. And that's just in this one passage. The Lord's prayer, his his lesson, his roadmap for us to pray is punctuated with requests. Teach us, give us, forgive us, lead us, deliver us. God wants you to ask him for things, large and small, important and seemingly insignificant. Listen, I pray every day for people that I know to come to Jesus. Their names are inscribed on my heart. I pray for Joe Sennett and, and Jordan Barden and, and Stephen Sharp and, and, and Sean Hale. These, these people that are deep within me that I pray for every day. And guess what? I also pray for a good parking spot when I go grocery shopping. 
Because I think that God delights when you ask because it shows him you trust him with everything. That's why we gave you these bracelets as a reminder to pray first, to pray about things before you engage them, before you go to work, before you have that coffee conversation, before you send that text, pray first and seek God's will on it. Because if you only pray about big things that you deem worthy of divine intervention, you will only experience the miraculous occasionally. But if you lift up everything to God, you will experience help in countless ways. In designing these prayer booklets that you will get if you attend any of our uh, prayer meetings, I was stuck. And by the way, if you weren't here at the beginning of the sermon, our prayer meetings are Tuesdays and Thursdays from 6.30 to 7.30 a.m. And the main one, Saturday from 9 to 10 a.m., bring your kids It's going to be great. But I was stuck on how to design a booklet. I literally spent like a year trying to design a booklet on our in-house printer. It was like banging my head on a brick wall. I called tech support. Nothing could help me with this, okay? And one morning, I was just frustrated about two weeks ago. And I'm like, God, just help me to make a booklet. Just a booklet. I was just like, I was done with it. And Stephen Munley in one day solved what took me a year, okay? So... God uses other people, all right? But that may seem trivial or stupid to you, but God cares about your small needs. Pray about them, and I guarantee you he'll answer them. Pray about your big needs. He'll address them. Archbishop uh, William Temple was an Anglican minister during the First World War. He said, when I pray, coincidences happen. When I stop praying, the coincidences stop happening. In the new year, I am endeavoring to be less cynical, more prayerful, more childlike, and more hopeful. To trust God with my everything. God will hear you if you'll have the faith to risk being heard. Jesus said, ask for anything in my name and I will do it. John 14, 14. He also said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you in Luke 11, 9. Prayer is no less spiritual because you're bringing your desires and your needs to God. Because even when you're praying about what you desire, you are still giving God what he desires, your heart. Some spiritual practices out there would teach you to eliminate desire like Buddhism. Instead, Jesus teaches you to trust God with your desires, to trust your father with them. Asking is also God's way of letting you participate in the work that he does. He does he, you have the honor of being able to affect real change in the world around you by the way that you pray. Uh, Moses altered the path of God when God was intent on destroying the Israelites for their sin. He said, get out of my way, I'll make a great nation out of you, I'm done with them. And, and Moses altered the mind of God by the way he prayed. And he's ordained that he listens to his children's prayers. How much more somebody who is a child of God, not just a prophet of God. Blaise Pascal was a French philosopher in the the Enlightenment. And he said, God has instituted prayer to lend to his creatures the dignity of causality. In other words, God gives you the dignity of making things happen when you pray. Pray for missions, pray for your family, pray for your friends, and watch what God does in your life and in theirs. Jesus beckons his disciples to ask. 
I've begun, I, I've, uh, it's a practice from this book that, uh, that I recommended to you earlier. D.L. Moody had a list of 100 people, and he prayed for them every day to come to faith in Jesus. These were people who were not believers in the Lord. And he prayed for them every day. By the time of his death, 96 of them had come to faith in Jesus. At his funeral, the final four gave their lives to Jesus. He got them. I've adopted this practice. I would encourage you to do the same. As I've begun to pray for these people, I've seen subtle shifts. The angel Gabriel said to Daniel, I, was, I heard your prayer at the beginning. God heard it. But I was delayed. There was a spiritual battle going on. Sometimes you have to persist in prayer. Keep asking. Keep knocking. Keep believing that the Lord's going to do what you want him to. And lastly, the Lord teaches us to yield. And this last guardrail is a bitter drink of medicine that produces the greatest health for those who are willing to do it in prayer. Yielding is an action that rarely feels good, but produces the fruit of righteousness in those who are willing to embrace it. Listen to the words of the Lord in verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Jesus teaches us that prayer is relational, so he ends with a relational example of yielding. In the same chapter that Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, in Luke chapter 11, a woman yells out to Jesus while he's teaching, blessed is the, wo- the wo- uh, woman who bore you. In Jesus, in usual fashion, like Jesus jukes her and like shoots back and says, nope, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. He was saying it is more blessed to yield to God than to be the mother of the Messiah. And as we just concluded Christmas and focused a lot on Mary, she was blessed not primarily because Jesus was her son, but because she kept God's word and yielded to what God spoke about her life, even though it wasn't the ideal. Even though it's not the story she would have written, she yielded to it. Because sometimes God will ask you to do things and embrace things that you don't want to. Jesus reminds us that an integral part of prayer is listening for when God speaks back. And Jesus uses the example of forgiveness here. Some of you have been wronged by people, uh, by friends, by parents, by family, by loved ones. And there's a sense in which you're right. You have every right to be indignant. But even when you're in the right, sometimes there's something more important at stake than punishment. James, the brother of Jesus, once said in James 2.13, mercy triumphs over judgment. And yielding for some of you might be praying that God would help and bless the last person on earth that you would like him to. I'm going to call for the worship team to come back at this time. Do any of you guys have that person when you go to holiday parties that you can't stand? Okay, apparently I'm in a room full of liars. Let me ask the question again. Do any of you have that person you cannot stand at holiday parties? Okay, thank you. Here we are. Confessional. There's this person that I see every year around the holidays because they attend the same holiday parties that I do. And every year, I get frustrated at them because they're opinionated, obnoxious, claim to be a Christian, and yet justify morally untenable positions in my opinion. They are the epitome of a lukewarm Christian, which is what I probably am irritated most by in all the world. 
They get under my skin. And sometimes I see them as the enemy. This year, though, I feel that God's begun to revive my own personal prayer life. Something interesting has happened. Instead of seeing them as worthy of judgment, which they are, I began to pray every day for this person for about two months prior to the holidays this year. I lifted them up every day in prayer. And you know, at first, you know, your prayers kind of take the form of like, Lord, slay the Amalekites. You know, you're praying things you shouldn't be praying. And they, you know, over time, my prayers began to like soften, I think, into what the heart of God was trying to say. And something interesting happened. When I saw them this year, my heart was grieved. And instead of being angry, I saw underneath all the opinions and all the noise and all the nonsense. And I just saw right past it and I saw the person. And to do that, I had to yield every day in prayer and ask God to help this person. But that did something incredible and unexpected for me. It began to soften my heart towards them. I grieve for the situation that they're in now. I no longer see it as a just consequence, though it may be. But it took yielding. And I'm still hoping for a miracle in this person's heart. I'm confident I'm going to see it because now I share the heart of God on the matter and not just his judgments. You need to yield to God in prayer. God doesn't request it. He demands it. He says, unless you forgive, you will not be forgiven. Unless you give it up, you cannot move forward. And it may be something else completely, but laying down your rights is the beginning of discovering them as a child of God. And some of you need to yield in community. Notice everything said in the Lord's Prayer is said in a plural sense. Our Father, teach us, give us, forgive us, lead us, deliver us. It's prayed together. It's meant to be something that's prayed together. And some of you resist and isolate. And I encourage you to be, the, the reason that we advocate so much for our next class, which happens every Sunday at 9 and 10 a.m., and the reason we advocate for small groups, and the reason we advocate that you be at these prayer first gatherings, is not because we just like to have a full room. It's because I believe that church is done with other people. It is not a solo sport. It's something we do together. Some of you need to be a part of that. You need to allow others in. You need to yield to God and to others in order to see real change and transformation and freedom happen in your life. Because you could hide out forever pretending to be okay. But yielding in prayer, and yielding with others in prayer, it's an important marker of growth. And I want to give you the chance to do that this morning. Because I believe when you pray alone, that's one thing. But if you're not seeing change, you need to pray with others. Because when you pray with others, the power of your prayer is multiplied. Because Jesus said, where two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst of them. So I want to give you the opportunity to do that this morning. Whether you're in one ditch or the other, you're a religious hypocrite or you're a mystic with no bearings and no anchor in your Father God. Wherever you happen to find yourself, God can help you pause and rejoice. He can help you ask the right things boldly and he can help you yield and sometimes you need others to pray for you to help with that so as everyone stands I'm going to invite the pastors and the elders and those who are credential holders in this church to make their way to the front here to pray with you you guys can stand on your feet and I'm going to invite the pastors and the elders to come 
this time. If you're credential holders in the assemblies, I also welcome you to come and to pray for people. But as we worship this morning, I want you to ask. I want you to take a moment to pause with God. I want you to rejoice that he hears you and that you don't have to earn that. And finally, I want you to yield whatever he's asking you to yield for this new year. And I believe if you do that, you will see growth because that's the Lord's promise. So let's worship. Let's pray together.